Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of last year, ahead of the Mountain West Center Evans Biography Awards Writers' Workshop for Autobiography and Biography. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Do you have an interest in family history, biography, autobiography, memoir? You'll want to stay tuned for the program today. Family history, genealogy, uh, one of the top pastimes. Uh, uh, if you look at um, internet traffic and interest online, uh, it's uh, the top or one of the top uh, pastimes and interests in uh, the U.S. today, in fact, in the world. Um, so, Evelyn Fundo, let's turn to you, uh, English professor and associate dean at uh, Utah State University. Um, tell us a little bit of the particulars and how people get connected. So, I'm also here as the director of the Mountain West Center, and we, we partnered with the Evans family, um, which sponsors the Evans Award. Which and so, what we're we're now moving into a, a, a part in our history with the, the with this partnership where we're covering aspiration to achievement. And the achievement is the awards, um, which we give every other year. And this year, the, the other years are aspiration. And that is people who are interested in biography, interested in telling people's story, whether those, whether those stories be family members or even biographies of historical figures or people you think need to be out there, need to be um, highlighted, et cetera. And I think the thing for me that is so exciting about this workshop is we're positioning ourselves as offering a unique experience in terms of writers' workshops. Most writers' workshops that you see out there are for people writing fiction or their poetry workshops. Um, this one is really about writing pe real people's stories, whether those people be your family members, like I say, or a historical figure. And there, that's a unique um, challenge to write those kinds of stories. And of course, autobiography is a, a part of that as well. So I, the point is that I, I want to make sure that people understand we're covering a broad range of things, but they're life stories. They're nonfiction stories. And how do you make those stories compelling and exciting and, and also accurate? Yeah. Uh, and I guess encourage people that it can be done, right? It can be a daunting thing, right? To write a biography, autobiography, memoir. Absolutely. Uh, we bring in uh, Jennifer Siner, who's professor of uh, English at Utah State University. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you'll be talking about using uh, fiction devices for for your autobiography or, or biography. To write memoir, right? yes. To exactly. write memoir, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've you've written a, a wonderful memoir, uh, Ordinary Trauma. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll we'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. Um, Evelyn Fonda, you're winner of a past. Evans I am. Award. So two of the sessions are being run by past Evans Award winners. Um, we're, we're both actually past Evans Handcart Award winners, uh, and that would be Aaron Thomas, who's on the line from uh, elsewhere, and me. And both of us wrote um, Aaron's is about coal and the coal industry and coal uh, history, and mine is about agriculture. All right. Uh, weeds, a farm daughter's lament. That's right. right. It's, a, yeah. it's a very fine. Uh, and Aaron's is coal in their veins. Coal in their veins. So let's let's welcome in Aaron Thomas. Uh, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Uh, so coal in their veins. And you, you're going to be talking about interweaving research and narrative. We'll, we'll talk about that as we go along. Uh, you're an adjunct professor at LDS Business College and Weber State uh, University. Uh, and we also bring in Amy Harris, uh, who is an associate professor of history at Brigham Young University and an accredited uh, genealogist author of uh, several books uh, in, in that field. Amy Harris, welcome to the program. 
Thank you. So we're going to be talking. You're going to be talking about using genealogy to build a biographical uh, lattice work. And I want to start to discussion with you. I mentioned at the top, family history genealogy uh, is an increasingly popular. It's one of the top. If you, if you do uh, web searches and, and such, it's one of the top uh, interests of of people. Uh, why do you think that is? Um, there's a lot of people who theorize various ways. One of the major um, answers to that is people feel disassociated and atomized in modern post-industrial societies, and so they're looking for some way to connect, to belong, to have meaning beyond day-to-day living. There's a quote from um, some surveys they did of some British hobby genealogists, and to put it into context, they figure a third of the adults in Britain have gone online look for their ancestors, um, and I think it's probably higher than that now. But this one particular respondent said that genealogy has taken the place of religion as something people can believe in. Interesting. And so I think it's, <laughs> its popularity is partially due to changes in technology that has allowed greater access to democratization of the records themselves, and then, of course, the explosion of cheap DNA tests. So those combinations have allowed more people to participate, but I think the motivation for why they want to participate is they want to they want to find some sort of connection or meaning. So I want to j- jump in and talk about uh, the, the the workshop you'll be presenting there. Um, so genealogical tools and approaches that can enrich biographical writing, in, including how genealogy can fill in the gaps when historical subjects uh, have left little written record, and that's the case, right? A lot of times. People are busy. They don't. They don't leave a record behind. <laughs> right. That's the majority of the cases. Right. It's not just if you've left something behind. It's are the subsequent generations motivated enough to preserve it um, and make it accessible, and so things get lost over time or thrown away, misplaced. Um, so yeah, the the records though that get kept consistently, at least in the last three or four or five hundred years, are um, government records. So or church records, christening records, or a death certificate, probate records, tax records, military records, those sorts of things get preserved for us by larger entities, churches or states, usually, or maybe schools. And the technique to get at those is general historical methodology, um, but some of the fine-grained technique of a genealogist connect the same person over multiple records that maybe aren't so straightforward, like a tax list or a census that just has check marks. Um, Or I was talking to my colleague that does African-American research, and he said sometimes it's not even a check mark, it's an age. And that's the only data point they have to connect that that could be their ancestor to some other record. So it is sort of taking bits and pieces, especially the further back in time you go. Late 19th or 20th century, you can find obituaries and local newspapers and birth and death certificates and so forth. But the further back in time you go, the more you have to piece it together with random comments (laughs) on a church record, perhaps. And if you're really lucky, somebody wrote about them in their diary and somebody's digitized or indexed that diary and you can find um, snippets mentioned about somebody um, in somebody Mm. else's account. But it's usually pulling little bits and pieces from various locations into one and hoping you can kind of paper mache a story together. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me turn next to Jennifer Siner. So you'll be talking about using uh, methods that you would use in fiction. Yes, for the workshop I'll be um, focusing on 
um, devices that fiction writers use, and nonfiction writers have often have always used as well, but we don't usually think about it quite this way. But in particular, thinking about how a story moves forward, say in a novel, and how that story is paced, and that's controlled by the relationship between the scenes that you write and the summary that stitches those scenes together. And so in order to create evocative and powerful stories, so to take the information that you've gathered together, either about yourself and your own past or about ancestors, if you are interested in having that information be compelling to an audience that's maybe beyond the family, um, to an outside audience, even publication, then you need to take that material, take that research, and you need to move it toward art. And for me, that means really figuring out how to choose the best scenes, how to select scenes, and then how to create a scene that is powerful in the way it invites the reader into the scene. The scene always works as evidence in a piece of fiction or nonfiction. It's where the reader gets to determine what they believe in relation to what it is the writer's telling them. So the scenes are really important in both forms. And I think fiction helps us think about what a good scene looks like. We inherently know this um, as readers. And the way I describe it when I'm teaching to my students is, when you're reading along and you recognize a scene is about to start, your feeling in your body is to settle down and wait for something to happen. Because we know intuitively that in a scene, something's about to be revealed. There's a reason that we've settled down. And so as a writer, you have to be aware of that pacing, that relationship between bringing the reader along, so summary is moving quickly through time, and then settling them down into a scene where something happens and the reader gets to experience it with the writer. So those are the kinds of things we're going to be talking about, figuring out what makes a good scene, how to use summary effectively, and then third, one of the aspects of memoir um, that is not true of fiction, is that we actually get to show and tell. So we tell through reflection. And so there's a musing voice in memoir. So we'll be talking about that as well. Um, so you, obviously you've experienced this, right? As a writer. You've written a memoir, mm -hmm. right? I have. Ordinary trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a matter of, you know, you have your whole life. Right. There at least up to this point, right? But you, you, need, you have to select Right. That's what's so Scenes. deceiving about nonfiction is you think, how hard can it be? I lived the story. I'll just <laughs> tell it. And that's not actually true. Um, you have to craft it. You have to shape it. And so figuring out uh, where and how to tell the story, so the lens through which you're going to move through the past, the metaphors that you're going to follow, that's the real challenge. So um, I think it's misleading. I think we think we have two... Um, we believe two fallacies about nonfiction. One, we think nonfiction is boring and just textbook, and that's not true. And the second, we think uh, nonfiction's already given, it's already there, and that's not true either. It has to be shaped. You have to find it, discover it, turn it into art. Can I follow up on that, too? Yes. I, the thing that I think is so interesting, particularly in this workshop about that, is that what Jennifer is describing can also be applied across the board between family history, memoir, autobiography, but also biography, too. Biographies are shaped. Um, biographies are stories that need to be compelling. Um, it's not just simply a listing of first they went here, then they went there, and then they did this. Mm -hmm. And so 
the best biographies, the biographies, for instance, that we give awards to with, with the Evans Awards are those awards that bring, that sort of put blood in the veins of the story mm. of, of the person's life. By the way, I have read some biographies that are like that. First they went here, for then they went exactly. there. Exactly. And it's it's exactly. pretty pretty boring. It's pretty, it is. You, you don't get a sense of the person's, really the person's life. Right. And then, so Jennifer's workshop really is about how do you get beyond that and right. how do you craft a story that drives along the reader. Yeah. Yeah. I want to turn next to Aaron Thomas. So in Coal in Our Veins, um, you, you had historical research, autobiography, journalism. So you're talking about your, your family, right, relationship to, to coal. But you're also doing quite a bit more. Tell, tell me about that and how you, sh- how you shape that. There are a lot of decisions that have to be made there, what to leave in, what to, what to leave out. Yeah, and I like how you frame it as decisions to be made. Because what we've been talking about, kind of the art of the story, and also kind of piecing together uh, that's involved in creating um, a biography, I think all those came to play in my book. Because um, what it was, it was a current event. It was um, the Sago mining disaster that started my book. Um, Because I realized that I had uh, a history in coal mining and that this was still relevant um, to our life. And so that was the beginning, is this um, current event and how that related to um, my family history. And so that's kind of, I guess, the organizing principle of the book. But along the way, there were a lot of decisions that I had to make. And what I want to emphasize about this writing is it's very intentional. Before I wrote this book, uh, there was a big question of how. How do you take the first-person narrative, and how do you interweave that with historical research? And how do you enrich these stories, you know, that have been passed down to me as, you know, genealogy, how do you make those come alive? And that's where the art comes in, and that's where the weaving comes in. And when you take all this information, and, you know, we learn in school, you know, about summary, paraphrase, and it goes way beyond that when you're taking research and you're making it into a story. You have to take ownership over that information. It has to become yours, and it has to become seamlessly part of this narrative. Because at the end of the day, this is a story, and so the narrative is always important. How do you move toward that story? How do you not let the research take over that story? Uh, You know, this is all, it's factual writing, but we have to make those facts that come alive um, through, like, these seemingly fictional techniques. And those decisions you make all along the way are really important. How do you structure this book? How do you transition? Uh, Before I wrote this book, I read a lot of books by people who do this sort of thing well. And I examined, you know, very very specifically, like transitions, transitions in tense, transitions between types of information. And so it, you know, when it's done well, it seems very natural. But there's a lot of decisions that are in there. And it's it's difficult to do, and it has to be... um, rewritten and uh, looked at again and making it work, um, I think is what most people struggle with. And there are judgment calls, right? We're talking about biography. The the, the biographies I've read that are just, uh, well, he went here, he went there, he went there. 
it's, it's boring in the fact that I don't know that I really got to know that person. Uh, so judgment call, you have to make some judgment calls, of, uh, I guess, how you feel about these things. Right. Yeah, there's um, there's a book by Vivian Gornick called The Situation of the Story, and she makes a point um, that it's really about how the story is told. You know, that's what really brings in the pathos of your audience. And so you have the story itself, but then the way the art is what is evocative. And she gives this quote, it's by V.S. Pritchett, which is really telling. It says, it's all in the art. You get no credit for living. And I think that's what's really important to for people to understand. You may have a story um, about somebody, uh, about a relative, uh, about yourself. It's a really interesting story. But what's going to really make your audience connect with that story is how it's presented to them. Hmm. Let me turn next to uh, Amy Harris. Um, yeah, I just want to jump in there. Yeah, so yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, uh, no, go. Uh, uh, finish that thought, and then I want to ask you a question. So I really appreciate what, um, what everyone was saying. I, I liked. I think all three of them said intentional um, and art. And um, I see that the sort of techniques I teach people in the classroom about finding people. Um, you know, I'm teaching family history majors, so that's just thrilling to them on its own. But then when we stop and think about the story, it's the same set of skills that I've heard the others describe. You have to think about which part of that story you want to tell and what's the context of um, their lives. And I love the, the word of intentional, because then you have to stop and think about you have a death certificate or you have six death certificates, and it shows you that that woman had four children die before the age of 10. And you have to think about how do I tell that story when I don't have her her words to tell me about that story. And so it's intentional, but it also has to honor the person whose story you're telling. And that can be tricky if you don't have their account to, to go from. And I think all of us do that, right? It's not everybody has a beautiful diary from every event they've written about. But you have to, I think it's intentional and it's also, it has to be respectful of the, the, the framework you use has to be respectful of the story you're telling. And I, I, I heard that in everybody's comments. I'm not saying somebody said something different, but I just really appreciated that way of framing it. Can I say, what's um, special, I think, about Amy's workshop is that she's written a book on sibling relationships in in Britain. And, and what I hear as she's talking here is that she's talking about the idea that we all live within human relationships. So even if you're writing a biography or an autobiography or a memoir, you get to research and think about and see these this individual within a human context. And you can use these methodologies of genealogy to do that, and that makes the story so much richer. Mm. I want to have you talk a bit about that, Amy Harris. Uh, so siblinghood and social relations in Georgian England. Um, and one of the places you went was Wills. It might seem pretty dry, right? Um, but but but, yeah. but, it, but I'm I'm <laughs> I'm sensing some drama, uh, you know, in in these stories. Uh, yes, yeah, so, and so I I looked at will disputes about wills. So there was lots of drama um, oh. because I was trying to find. I had all these diaries and letters from sibling relations, you know, siblings in the 1700s who, by the fact that the letters survived, they've already been curated by generations of the family. So all I was seeing was highly functional and meaningful relationships. And I wanted to get at 
the conflict that must have been in many families, and so that's why I read probate disputes, and I just looked for all the ones that contained brothers and sisters fighting. So, yeah, there was a lot of drama. There was forged wills. There was... Wow. Screaming and tearing wills into bits and pieces and throwing it into the fire and um, and, a, and a much lower level of just, you know, acrimony and discontent that didn't uh, involve as much screaming um, or forgery. But, um, yeah, there's... So are you... You want me to talk about the complexity of those, or just to, yeah, to... yeah. And I guess I'll I'll just say editorially here that uh, I don't know what it says about me. I guess it says about us as human beings that uh, if I know your story contains screaming and and uh, tearing up of wills, <laughs> I, it makes me want to read it more. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the chapter that's about that might not thrill you because there's lots of graphs and charts about who fought who, and you know. <laughs> It was younger brothers fighting their sisters-in-law and so on and so forth. Um, but the uh, if you go looking for craft of writing, I'm not sure my first book that was built on a dissertation is going to compare with the other three authors here. I think I've become a much better storyteller since then. Um, I, there's parts in there that are okay. but uh, So, yeah, there was lots of uh, conflict that has to do with gender, marital status, and age, and how those combined. So a younger married sister has very little power among her siblings when she's an adult. Uh, a single sister has a lot of power. Uh, a younger, I mean, an older married brother has a fair amount of power. Um, the, the sort of combination and how those change over time can lead to varying kinds of conflict. That somebody who was very close to you in age um, you know, when you're six, seven, eight years old, but then gender separates your lived experience in some ways as they age in that period. Um, and then if one marries and one doesn't, or one has financial prosperity and one doesn't, it, it kind of flips, can flip sibling hierarchy, um, can add tension. <laughs> uh, the one set of siblings that were largely highly functional, um, the youngest sister always complained in her letters how they ignored her or weren't writing often enough. Um, and she's complaining about her brother who bailed her out financially, her and her husband financially. And the other sister uh, drafts a letter, and the letter she sends doesn't survive, but the draft does. And you just see the, the just the emotional labor it took to write that letter. It's crossed out. It's scribbled over. She's choosing her words very carefully. And this is... This is a set of siblings in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, right? They've had a lifetime together, and she still has to be very careful to, to figure those things out. So there's always this razor's edge between <laughs> amicable sibling relationships and um, destructive ones. And it's, I, think, I, I think it was Evelyn that made the comment earlier. I think that's true for most people. In any biography, autobiography, you write a story about people that – they're going to have family and neighborhood relationships that are going to go up and down, just like all of ours. And there's a fine line between when it goes from supportive to resentment um, and how people navigate that is just kind of fascinating. And how, and how that affects their material living conditions is also fascinating to me. Yeah, and I think that's a key point. These are, you know, we're all nodding along. We all, we all have experienced this, you know. Human condition continues, yeah. uh, you know, Georgian England yeah. to today. Uh, let's let's take a break, and uh, when we come back, we'll have uh, have more uh, with the panelists uh, or the workshop presenters. 
at the Mountain West Center in Evans Awards Writers Workshop for Biography and Autobiography. We're talking with uh, Aaron Thomas, uh, talking about interweaving research and narrative. Amy Harris, we're talking about using genealogy to build a biographical latticework. Uh, Evelyn Funda, interpreting uh, family artifacts while writing autobiography and biography. And Jennifer Siner, borrowing fiction devices to build scenes in memoir. Um, I just want to mention before we go to break, another event that's uh, going to be happening. And you're listening to Access Utah. UPR's debunked podcast is made possible by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to quality teaching, outreach, and research, offering services to the community and providing students with real-world service and research opportunities. Information at cehs.usu.edu. This is Amy Anderson for Bringing More to Life. We are grateful for the many ways our families and communities support the residents of nursing homes, assisted living centers, and seniors everywhere. This population is at greater risk for being affected by COVID-19. Nursing homes and assisted livings across the nation have placed restrictions on visitors to protect their residents. However, restricting visits does not mean curtailing communication from family and friends. We encourage you to use email, FaceTime, Skype, snail mail, or a simple old-fashioned telephone call to check in with the seniors you know. Communicate with their family or care center to find the best way to connect. Together, we will continue to provide the physical and social support our community members deserve and desire. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we follow the reggae rhythm back to its origins and explore the African branch of the reggae family tree. I'm Dan Storber. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for African Reggae, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about uh, family history, genealogy. We're talking about how to write up uh, your story story of your ancestor, perhaps a story of someone uh, else, um, writing biography, autobiography, the Mountain West Center and Evans Awards Writers Workshop for Biography and Autobiography. Uh, Emlyn Funda, how do people connect up with the workshop? Um, they can go to our website, which is mountainwest, all one word, dot usu dot edu. You can go there and learn more information. The- all right. We have with us uh, on the line Aaron Thomas, who is adjunct professor at LDS Business College and Weber State University, author of Coal in Our Veins, A Personal Journey. Uh, Amy Harris, uh, who is associate professor of history at uh, Brigham Young University and accredited genealogist, author of Siblinghood and Social Relations in Georgian England. Also uh, uh, other books. Uh, Jennifer Siner is with us. She's a professor of creative writing at Utah State University. Uh, her books include Ordinary Trauma, a memoir, and Evelyn Funda, uh, is director of the Mountain West Center. That's right. right. Uh, professor of English and associate dean. And uh, her books include Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament. Um, so maybe starting with Aaron Thomas on this one, I'd like to go around our, our panel and, and talk about how you find stories and what the meaning of those stories is. And let me 
preface this by saying um, I, I've talked to people and who say, well, my story is not going to be that interesting. Why should I write it down? Why should I keep a journal? Why, sh-, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm pretty ordinary, right? Um, so starting with Aaron Thomas, you you got interested in your own family's uh, story. What, what um, uh, first of all, what, I guess it's obvious what drew you to it. It's your family story, right? But what about it uh, drew you to it, and what, what meaning did you find? Uh, so when we talk about thematic material or the meaning of a story, I think it's really, um, uh, I guess, it reveals something when we look at the provocation. And so when we write something or when we want to write something, we're being motivated by something. And so being able to identify our motivation for a story What's driving us? Uh, what are the... So people have talked about how, like, when you write biography and autobiography, we're a person within a society of other people. And so what are you responding to? Um, is there an argument or an idea that other people have proposed that you're responding to? Uh, what is it that you want to communicate? And who is your audience? And so I think these are all really relevant questions. Uh, when you're trying to find what that story is. And I think the themes, the thematic material, come out of those questions. And so for me, it was that, again, I was I was in the O'Hare airport, and I saw um, this new um, story about these families that were in a little white church house in um, West Virginia, and they were waiting to find out if their family members were alive. And um, there were 13 miners that were trapped in this mine. And when I saw that, it was so riveting, and it brought me back to my own family history. Um, My ancestors were involved in both the Schofield Mining Disaster and um, the Castle Gate. And those are in the top five mining accidents in actually U.S. history. And so that current event and kind of bringing me back to the stories of my ancestors is what really motivated me. And then I started to think beyond that about coal as an energy source and, like, what that means to, like, my life and what that means to our lives and what do we do with that. There's people who are digging it, who are dying, and is this something we should be doing? And so I had all these questions. And from that, it moved me towards the narrative of my book. It developed from all of those questions and so the provocation. And it was very much just this, this story where I saw these people and just how much coal mining and coal was part of their culture in their life. And uh, from that, I ended up traveling back to Wales, which is where my ancestors came from. And, you know, in my own, I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and there was this big debate over this power plant and how it was affecting people because it was burning coal and, you know, dust was ending up on their doorsteps. And so that's where the story evolved from. And so I think um, when we're finding this story, the best thing is to look at what's motivating us to write it. And what did what did you gain yourself? What uh, understanding did you gain about yourself or, or your family from this process? So uh, the title of my book is called A Personal Journey, and um, that's the subtitle because it's what it is. Um, and I think when we're looking at good biographies and we're looking at good autobiographies, uh, there has to be this element of discovery in there. And... I think what I gained from the experience is I had a clear understanding of my family history. Um, I had a clear understanding of energy and kind of 
what my opinion was for where we needed to go with that. And I had this deepened and appreciation for coal miners and for the people that work to bring this energy to us. And, and there's a morality attached to energy because it affects people's lives in such profound ways. And so I think that's what I gained from it is just, um, I guess, a sense of appreciation for the people for these, um, you know, hundreds of years that have been bringing us um, these things to their labor and even their death. And then uh, just where do we go from here and how do we honor um, those sacrifices and how do we um, move forward in a way that is respectful to people and the environment? And so I guess that was maybe um, my conclusion at the end of the book. Mm, interesting. Um so before we go to memoir with Jennifer Siner, and, and then I'll, I'll end this section with Amy Harris and and, uh, and your research, uh, not directly related to your family, or maybe it is, you can tell me. Uh, go next to Evelyn Funda. So you also look to your family. Um, and, I mean, there's some spectacular stories in the book, including your, your mother uh, being shuttled out of... Uh, out of Czechoslovakia, yeah. communist Czechoslovakia. But uh, wh- where did wh- what were you looking for at first in in delving into your family? Well, you know, I mean, I think that that biography and autobiography, and my book is a series of biographies that are family biographies in a way. So that's how I structured it. Um, I think that biography and autobiography, in as an impulse, is this um, effort to make stories that are lost stories. Um, come to the forefront. I mean, originally, when we when you look at the history of, of autobiography or biography, of course, y- you get the great man. You get the this this was an important person. This was a president, or this was a you know a whoever, and we have to write that person's story. What's happening is now we're fighting a back against that impulse, and we're saying no. There are common stories out there that are compelling, and that they are stories that are as revealing about history as as the the great man biography. So for instance, with with my book, um, I have spent much of my life with this, you know, the imposter syndrome of I'm just a dumb farm girl from Idaho. And not only am I just a dumb farm girl from Idaho, but I also come from these backward immigrants, these Czech immigrants. And and so my book is really sort of fighting against that to say, well, they're humble people, they were hardworking people, they didn't make news but they made a difference, and they, they, their story is relevant and revealing in a broader context to what it was like to be an immigrant in the early 20th century, for instance. And what do you, what are the top lessons you learn about yourself and your family from having delved into, into this history and written about it? Um, well, for me, it was a matter of pride. I mean, you know, in some ways, writing a, a, a memoir is, is a selfish act because it was a matter of I had this this family story and I thought it needed to be told. And um, I was proud of that. I was proud of that story, as humble as it was, because, again, my family didn't make news in the world, but they nevertheless made a difference. Mm. Let me turn to Jennifer Siner. So... Memoir, obviously, you're finding stories in from your life, right? Uh, maybe even more so than writing uh, about your relatives, although they come in, right? They come in, right? They come in, but you're you set out to to look at your your own life, right? 
And I think the question that you asked about uh, people feeling like their stories don't matter, I think that's a very common feeling. My students will often say in my classes that they don't have anything to write about. And when they say that, what they're saying is there is not a automatically dramatic narrative in their family or their past. And I, I tell them often that I actually think that's your advantage. It's to your advantage if you've lived a quote-unquote ordinary life. Because um, when you have a dramatic story in your past, that story has a lot of power in shaping influence and is in, it's received, it's already been told, and it's sometimes hard to extricate yourself from that story and figure out what you have to say about the story that gets handed down. But a lot of us live much more ordinary lives, and the challenge there is in figuring out the way our humanity gets revealed in ordinary moments all the time. And so if we can capture what it was like, say, to be 13 years old and living in a military base on Pearl Harbor, if we can describe what, your day, what her days were like, if she can figure out what it meant to be a girl body in a very hyper-masculine environment, if she can figure out what it meant to uh, grow up understanding that she had a duty and her duty was to the country itself, if she can start to articulate that as an adult, then I think what happens is a doorway gets created. And that's Scott Sanders' language, that a memoirist creates a door, writes about their experience to create a door through which others then can pass. So ideally, at the end of a piece of memoir, yes, you've written about yourself, but you've been able to reflect on it so deeply, so thoroughly, you've come to understand why it matters, that the reader doesn't have to have shared the same life experience. They tap into the aspect of your humanity that you're revealing. And so in that way, I think memoir, regardless of the kind of memoir you're writing, I would say this is probably true of all writing, but memoir in particular, is it's very healing for you, even if you would say you haven't struggled or suffered. It's healing in that you start to realize um, your own complicated sense of self in relation to these other people, primarily, say, your family, and how nobody is entirely good and nobody is entirely bad. Everybody's probably doing the very best that they can, even when that sometimes causes pain and suffering. And when you start to realize that, you have a larger heart for the rest of the world. You understand that not just everyone in your family was doing the best that they could, but pretty much everyone in the world is doing the best that they can, even when we mess up and even when we hurt each other. Mm. So I think it can be a very powerful, healing, profound experience to write about yourself and your past. Um, I think you become a better person, a better human being. Mm. I just want to follow up. You you talked about her, right? In, yes. in it's really Harvard. me. It's yes. really you, right? <laughs> yes. And that's, that's interesting. Um, because we do become different people. You know, we, we, well, we, we do evolve over time. You're writing about the 13-year-old right. at that but point. But that's the other fascinating thing, right, is that there's never been a moment in any of our lives when we've been outside our bodies. We've always been in this exact same body. It's the same body, even though the body is radically different than it was when you were a newborn. The same is true for ourself. We've always been the part of the same continuous self, even though the self we have now, we would say, is radically different than our toddler self. So we're both and at the same time. 
And I think um, I think it's important. And when you do look backward, it's the I now voice, right now writing about the I then. In a sense, the I then is a character. She becomes a she, even though you use I. Let me turn uh, uh, similar questions to uh, Amy Harris. So Amy Harris would be talking about, uh, uh, you know, people writing about their own family or their own self. And your books are not about your own, or are they? Do you, are you related into some of these people? Mm, no, well, um, Elizabeth Browett in one of my articles is my great, great, great aunt. She was born Elizabeth Harris. Yeah. Uh, but nobody else, nobody else is related to me. And my my ancestors lived on the opposite side of the county of one of the primary families I used in my book, and they couldn't have lived in different universes. Oh, okay. My ancestors were carpenters and butchers, and they were gentry connected to you know lower levels of the aristocracy. So they never would have they lived ten miles apart, but they never would have associated with each yeah. other socially. So I do so, want to I no. do want to ask you about the, this impulse. We talked uh, earlier in the program about uh, how this is. This is an interest for many, many people and a growing number of people. Uh, I'm reading from your biography here at, uh, at BYU. Um, Amy Harris has been drawing pedigree charts since she could write. This is an early interest of, <laughs> of yours. What, what, what's the impulse, yes. do you think? Uh, for me or yeah, for others uh, for, like for, me? For you and, and, and for <laughs> others, yeah. Um, this, this is, I mean, this is sort of my own little personal memoir story. I've told myself in my head about this to explain the answer to this question. Um, and I really appreciate the way Jennifer was framing that sort of the, you know, the young version of me, what was the impulse is, could be very, has changed over time. Um, looking back, the way I understand why I was sitting by my dad asking for family stories and filling out pedigree charts when I was six or seven was um, my parents are the younger end of very large families, and I'm the youngest of a very large family. I have eight older siblings. Um, my mom is the youngest of 14, my dad the eighth of nine. And uh, my grandparents, three of them died long before I was born, and the last one was completely non-communicative, uh, couldn't move. Um, so my memories of her are very, you know, there wasn't really a personality I en- encountered there. Uh, so I think what I was looking for was to be part of the story. I had this keen sense that my family had had a lot of history before I ever showed up, even my siblings, right, family vacations and family traditions that predated me by 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and so I kind of wanted to be a part of those stories, and I think that's what motivated it early on was probably how to connect to, how to belong to this family Um via the stories. I mean, I belonged because I was born into it and they loved me, but um, how did I belong to the culture of that family? And you have to know the stories to know a culture. Uh, and you have to know which stories are meaningful and which ones can be shared inside and which ones can be shared outside. <laughs> um, and so I, I think I wanted to learn those. And then I, I identified family photos. When I was a teenager, I gathered all the family photos and I would carry them around to family gatherings and try to get people to tell me who was in them so that we could identify and preserve um, and I learned stories. So in some ways, one of my older brothers will call me and ask me information about the family from before I was born because I know it better than he does, and he lived <laughs> through it because um, I'm the one who learned the stories. So I don't think that's entirely unusual, whether someone comes to it young or older, and what I'm hearing reflected in the others' comments is the same thing. It's this, it, might, it might start about your own personal story, or maybe your families, and it might have to do with trauma or trying to understand difficulty, and it might just 
might not be that dramatic. Um, just trying to understand where he came from. And then it often pivots outward, and you start thinking about others' stories. And um, I really liked what Jennifer said, right, sort of appreciating the, the shared humanity and that everybody faces some set of similar circumstances that can make you compassionate. Mm. Um, and I think most people who are driven to go looking for their families, like I said earlier, they're looking for that same, they're looking for the same thing. They're looking for some particular to them <laughs> culture, society, association that they belong to, that they know all the inside jokes and they know the exact way to speak the language um, that is sort of rooted there. And I've, I've had many students tell me, Family history helps them overcome trauma, and this is very much a growing vein in genealogy is to talk about um, healing um, and coming to terms with abuse or neglect or just traumatic family experiences. And they've had many students talk about they use family history as a way to build a family they belong to that isn't about the abuse, either because they figured out ways to forgive generational abuse, which is just staggering to me. Um, or they find a way to make a family story that's not about the abuse, that they, they, they push that story away and say that story happened, but I don't have to perpetuate it. I don't have to be part of that. I can choose other parts of my family's story to build the culture I belong to, you know, to build something I belong to and find meaning in. Um, and so I think... I think there's a lot of folks that are that are thinking, how do I how do I make meaning out of maybe not the best best stories? I think in the past genealogy was seen as heroic, right? Was kind of its connections to eugenics and racism are not um, accidental, right? People were going to make themselves elite or heroic ancestors, and increasingly since roots, <laughs> and then with the technological tools available to us now, people are they're looking for ways to make sense of the not-so-heroic stuff um, and, and to, to not bury it, but to come to terms with it in some way. Um, and and I, think that, I think that drives people to just keep looking and do what might seem like boring things to somebody else, but are really meaningful if, they can, if it helps them make sense of the good and the bad that they inherited from the past. Yeah, certainly. Well, we we have about four minutes left in the program. Uh, it's whipped by, so I, I want to do, do do some quick hits. So, um, uh, at the, with the last four minutes, uh, we'll start with uh, with Aaron Thomas, um, and then just go around the panel. So, j- just one piece of advice for somebody who's who, who's writing biography or autobiography. Um, what's 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 your one piece of advice? Uh, to read. Uh, good writing <laughs> comes from good reading. And I think at the end of the day, writing this sort of thing well is all about the nuts and the bolts. All right. And the way that you get that is from your reading. From reading. Okay. Jennifer Siner, your one piece of advice. Well, Aaron took mine because that was mine. So my <laughs> second one would be probably Aaron's second, which is to write a lot. And there's just no way to get around practice. You have to put in the 10,000 hours. Make the writing low-stakes writing. Just do a lot of journaling, and uh, you just got to get the words on the page. Um, Amy Harris, we'll go to you next. Your your one piece of advice. Um, in the midst of all that writing, I would say to pause on occasion and ask if you're if you're asking the right questions of the of the content you have. 
Mm, excellent. Evelyn Funda. Um, that when you're doing research for writing biography or autobiography, that sometimes the stories are contained in ordinary things or material culture, um, photographs, ephemera, that kind of thing. All right. Uh, we've been talking with uh, four presenters at uh, the Mountain West Center and Evans Awards Writers Workshop for Biography and Autobiography. So we've been talking with Erin uh, Thomas, talking about interweaving research and narrative. And she's adjunct professor at LDS Business College and Weber State University, author of Coal in Our Veins, A Personal Journey. Erin Thomas, thanks so much. You're welcome. Uh, Amy Harris, talking about using genealogy to build a biographical latticework. Uh, she's associate professor of history at Brigham Young University, accredited genealogist and author of uh, several books, including Siblinghood and Social Relations in Georgia and England. Amy Harris, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jennifer Siner has joined us in studio. She's professor of creative writing at uh, Utah State University, author of several books, including Ordinary Trauma, uh, a memoir, talking about borrowing fiction devices to build scenes in a memoir. Thank you. Thank you. And Evelyn Funda is director of the Mountain West Center. Um, Mountain West Center for? Regional Studies. Regional Studies. And okay. uh, the website is mountainwest at usu.edu. Okay. Uh, also professor of English and associate dean at Utah State University. Uh, her books include Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament, talking about interpreting family artifacts while writing autobiography and biography. And uh, we thank you for listening today to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. I think the ability to prepare a scrambled egg is among the very basics of kitchen skills. Most people are cracking an egg over a pan sputtering with hot butter before they ever hear words like al dente or panko. Eggs are the wax-on-wax-off phase in a cooking education, stretching and strengthening the foundation upon which everything else is built. But what if, after all these years, you've been doing scrambled eggs wrong? What if you learned to cook an egg way back in college, say, and you've been doing it in the same way twice a week for five decades? Your eggs seem fine, but you've been settling. What if your scrambled eggs aren't anywhere near as good as they could be? Light and creamy, dazzling in their simplicity without the need for hot sauce or cheese to augment and embellish. What if they are just mediocre? Is it too late to change? I'm going to ask you to follow these instructions exactly the next time you cook an egg. I won't promise this will change your life. It actually won't at all. But it will help your scrambled eggs taste better and maybe make you think twice the next time you whip up this breakfast staple. First, don't crack the eggs into the pan. There's no way to get around it. You're going to have to dirty another dish. Crack them into a bowl and whisk them gently until they're combined. Dribble in a little water or milk if you want, around two teaspoons per egg. Some people don't add liquid, but I find that this makes the resulting scramble too tight. Water adds lightness, and milk can make things more creamy. Next, get your pan heating on the stove. There are several ways to go at this point. Most people slap in a bit of butter. Some people go with a nonstick pan and don't use any fat. Lately, I've fallen for olive oil. Sounds weird but this is why. Butter adds flavor and creaminess, but it burns easily. So when you cook with it, you need to go low and slow. With olive oil, you can crank up the heat so that when you pour in the eggs, they balloon into a frothy, light pillow of protein in just seconds. It's a difference in texture and a slight difference in taste and depends on your preference. 
When your pan is hot, pour the egg mixture in and stir it gently with a silicone spatula, scraping the bottom as you go. There are a lot of different techniques, but I find it easiest to pull the cooked eggs to one side and tip the pan so that the runny egg can find the heat. And now we come to the pivotal point in this narrative. Do not overcook your scrambled eggs. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. When most of the liquid egg is cooked, but there's still plenty of softness and looseness, take the pan off the heat and fold them over on themselves. Then get the eggs out. They'll continue to cook for a few minutes and be perfect when the fork hits the curd. The timing on this takes a little practice, but it means the difference between a soft, satisfying, light and creamy bite and a bit of lifeless protein. You can wait until right at the end to add the salt and pepper, since you get more bang for each gram of sodium that way. You can also add anything from chunks of ham to chopped scallions to dress things up. But if you cook them right, the bling will be optional because scrambled eggs done right can stand completely and deliciously on their own. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. As part of Project Resilience, Utah Public Radio and the USU Center for Persons with Disabilities presents the Mental Health and Developmental Disability National Training Center's Crossroads podcast. In Episode 8, Improving Access to Mental Health Services for Young Adults with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities and Mental Health Needs. Find this and other episodes by going to our website, upr.org, and linking to our Project Resilience programming.